We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. Just one more thing. Hey now. Oh boy. Holy mechanical armies. Mom always liked you best. Oh, she did. <laughs> you wanted to be one word. What is the other word? One of these days. Are we having fun yet? It's going to be legend. Wait for it. Now, you might very well think that, but of course I couldn't possibly comment. Bertie Helens agreed. Oh, come on! Missed it by that much. Good evening. Hello, and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sight's TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsik, and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Uh, weird. It's going weird. I just quit my job. And I'm getting ready to head up to Toronto to scope out apartments, and it's, it's getting intense. I mean, it's getting weird, but I'm 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 coping. That's good. That's the first step. <laughs> I mean, like that should be your minimum, you know. Hopefully, yeah. you can build from there, build up from coping. So yes. <laughs> good times. Um, we have we have a, a bit of a, a fun show coming today. We have something different. Uh, for the first time, you actually were able to join me for an in- interview. So rather than doing uh, DVD shelf this week, we got a chance to talk with Chris Gore from Attack of the Show about DVDs and some and and uh, some other things like that. So that'll be coming at the end of the show. That was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And next week we're going to be running, I believe, our shelf with him on Nathan Barley. Yeah, so it'll, it's going to be a gore fest for the next couple of weeks. Oh, pun! Nah, intentional pun I this see what time. You did there. There's an unintentional pun coming for for you guys uh, later. But uh, yeah, so we got some great comments this week, and uh, I many of them, most of them were were good wife related. So uh, that was kind of cool. Uh, I found out some. We have another listener who watches Good Wife. So that that's Matt, which takes us up to two listeners that we <laughs> yeah. know. It it seems like a lot of what I hear is people guiltily explaining why they haven't been watching it. Mm-hmm. Well, cause, which has been good. Well, I know Mario said that he kept up with the first two seasons, but when it moved to Sundays on CBS because of like the sports delays, it keeps getting pushed back later and later, and so it's just been building up on his DVR, and he hasn't been able to. You know, stick with it. So I, I completely understand that. I, if I had to actually get up in the, for, you know, for work Monday morning, if I had a regular work schedule, I think I would be way behind on it too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you, it's definitely worth catching up on. Yeah. As we've repeatedly acknowledged. We also we got a, a mention on uh, the, re, the most recent previously on because they they you know they're the only other podcast I could think of that actually spent a significant chunk of time on the Good Wife finale and. Uh, because you know they're 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 the other people that I know who watch uh who watch Good Wife you know watch all of it, right. and they had just been on the show so I didn't want to bother them see if you know to see if they would come on again and apparently I was just supposed to ask them because they they would have liked to come on so <laughs> now I know well, noted <laughs> noted don't worry about being polite just poke them and 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 they'll come hang out with us so that's uh, good to know so it's fun thank you guys for 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 that we heard from ken who uh explained his lack of long reply last week apparently he got swallowed by guild wars 2 which was in beta last weekend um also he thinks that we should do a mad style ish kind of uh review thing for a tv show based on the music so the way what tom and lorenzo do for the fashion of of mad men we should i, I should do he suggested for uh, a different show um but my my 
note was that while yes i i'm a musician i'm a you know classical musician i can break down scores and instrumentation all day long i know nothing about pop music but you have a long history with with radio stations and and all of this so maybe our our powers combine what what, what do you think uh sure if somebody wants to clone us and and make us have time to do that it's an, it's an excellent idea i'm not sure um how how we will but it's 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 an interesting notion we'll have to think on it i think the thing see for me we, see if we could do it in radio or written format or well it's just there has to be a show that warrants it and i can't really think of a show that has that puts Both. as much thought into its into its music um as the the people at, at Mad Men put into their costuming, you know. So, uh, well, I was gonna say Mad Men's pretty close. It's pretty much it, but um, you know. But and we're we're gonna talk about the music of Mad Men later, sort of inevitably. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but they're they're using like a song or two over the course of you know it's it's a different it's a different yeah. beast because it's not every time anybody's on screen they're of course going to have someone have selected every element of clothing that they're wearing and you don't tend to get that similar kind of uh, density of sound on most shows right now. But it's, it's a great idea, Ken. So thank mm. you for the suggestion. And I would love to steal it and, and do that if we can get the stars to align. I don't know. We'll see. Most interesting density of sound in TV scoring, by the way, Venture Brothers. Venture Brothers. Throwing that out there. Yeah. Fetus. My man Fetus <laughs> is doing good work. Good stuff. So I, that is that. When's that coming back? Is that back now? When, well, it's mostly produced by two guys who do everything. So basically, whenever they're done. Okay. Fair and when enough. I say do everything, I in I'm including like thirty character voices. <laughs> well, so you know they take their sweet damn time. Well, and they turn out a good product from you know what I've seen. So it's hard to really argue with it. Um, we have a couple. I have a couple articles going up at Send On Site this week. I am b behind. I didn't get my article out last week on time, um, so I'm gonna ha have two out this next week. Um, one, a list of sh TV shows that build universes of guest characters really well, and another, a bit of a beginner's guide to Joss Whedon's TV work because I know for a lot of people they're just discovering him now because of Avengers, which I, I know you guys have a podcast up about that. Yes, we do. Um, but it's been a lot of fun for me as a Whedon fan to watch other people sort of be exposed to his writing and, and, and stuff. So I still can't get over how strange it is that he's made something successful. <laughs> well, hey, Buffy was really successful, and in particular the second and third season. It was huge for the WB. It put them on the map, but right. that not was... mainstream. That was how long ago? A very long time ago. That's true. But uh, yeah, so yes. so the, you can look out for those at soundedsite.org this week. And we have all, all sorts of different reviews going up. A lot of finales are happening. So if you want to get you know season uh, retrospectives and, and looks at different finales that are finishing up, go ahead and, and stop over to the TV section there and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have you covered. And this coming week, I think we've got Fringe, New Girl... Vampire Diaries, Vampire Diaries. Uh, is, is finishing up. Parks and Rec has its finale this, this coming oh, week. Oh, crap. Yeah. Yeah. How I Met Your Mother has its finale. Smash has its finale. Uh, the <laughs> Voice will have its reveal of who won. That'll be tonight, but that'll technically be next week. So, yeah, things are really starting to, to 
mm-hmm. wrapped down. And then the week after that, we have even more. So I think 30 mm-hmm. Rock and, and uh, Supernatural and all that. So so the next few weeks, uh, a lot of the, the regular season right. shows will be coming yeah, to an I, end. I, I can't wait for Smash to conclude with a clan rally or blood orgy or something appropriate for just the trajectory it's headed on it's been so f- mo ryan from having to post has been catching up on smash just like the past few days she's been like s- just watching all of them and it's been hilarious to-, to follow her tweets about it just oh man like all of our our problems with smash condensed into just a series of 140 character uh frustrations uh, well I know what I'm going to be doing while you're talking. No, not really. <laughs> not really. Okay, so we, we should uh, get get to it, though. We uh, we have a bunch of shows this week, as ever, that, that I uh, checked out that you did not get to, so we'll start with those. And first, there's Cougar Town, Southern Accents. Uh, this episode was a lot of fun, and I liked its exploration of racism with, uh, with Bobby, and who's just such a lovable sort of a buffoon kind of character. And so to have his... <laughs> His uh, unintentional, casual, uh, racist comments, and, and but then also his clear distress over this uh, was, I think, a, a lot of fun uh, and something that we'll see if they come back to again, or I have a feeling it might just be dropped. Then we have uh, Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, The Wedding. I jumped back in to check out where the show is at. I've been hearing good things. I think it's it's it, it looks like it's on the, in the right direction, moving in the right direction. But it's it's still not quite there as far as I'm concerned yet. But it, it it's definitely one that I will keep an eye on and to to see because I feel like when it clicks, it could be really a lot of fun. So it's definitely an, an interesting one of the the mid season replacements. I would say next community course listing unavailable. I I don't have a lot to say about this one either. It was sort of a, a strange episode in that it. There was a lot that wasn't particularly funny, um, but it wasn't particularly dramatic either. It felt very much just sort of present um, without a clear tone. There was some zany, there were some zany elements with Chang and and, and such, but uh, and and just the dean's fabulous can can outfit it was worth I think the price of admission. But uh, as, as far as goes, you know, sort of a interesting transition episode uh but we'll see where where that goes in the next few weeks then we have the vampire diaries before sunset and i will keep this spoiler free for you um but this is the penultimate episode of the season they kicked things into high gear at the very start of this episode it was full of action full of character it was really fun and i am completely stoked for the finale uh i was a little unsure of how that how it was going to go down of if they were going to be able to pull off they have, they're juggling a lot of balls right now but they uh they 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 they're doing a good job and so I'm I'm excited for the finale. Next we have Supernatural Reading is Fundamental. Uh this is written and directed by Ben Edlund who I'm a huge fan of. Um are you familiar with his work? I can't say that I am. Uh he created The Tick. Uh he wrote, he's Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah yes, he's yes. he's done all sorts of stuff. He's a, a a Joss Whedon alum. He wrote uh Janestown, the one of the most universally appreciated Firefly episode, episodes. Um and uh so he he's the guy is really uh really knows his comedy and and so it was there were some funny elements to the episode. It was a really strong episode, I thought. Um but I was a little 
you know, whenever I see Ben Edlund's name, I'm sort of expecting it'll be a laugh riot. And so that's not really what this episode was going for. So I was a little disappointed there. But um, on, on overall, it was it had a, a strong sense of the show's history. They did a good job of bringing in elements um, that I f that it seems like should have been, you know, players all season long. Um, but at least they're they're getting into it now, and it, it should be interesting to see the last couple episodes build. It, it seems like they have a clear trajectory of where they're going now. So so while parts of this ep of the season have felt really stop and start, and like there hasn't been necessarily the the strongest overall vision for the season, it seems like that those flaws have been worked out, and like they're going to have an exciting final couple episodes so that should be fun then we have the amazing race finale and you didn't get to this one no because it was stupid long and it was the whole thing but i i, I did follow along on the pool mm -hmm. and i was so close to winning yeah so very close if only i'd gone all in on on rachel and dave i would have taken it yeah and for i i just had to throw art and jj 10 points just to be safe <laughs> next time no safe and Rachel and Dave were my initial picks, mm -hmm. and then they they faltered a little bit in the early one in the early run, and I got skittish. And I, it, if I'd done if I'd stayed with them, I would have won by like thirty points or something ridiculous like that. Well, and that's ah. <laughs> well, we we have uh, our official winner is Mario. So congratulations, Mario! It's fabulous, and he went from last place to first place in this uh, just with his picks from this week because I, I thought it was uh, everybody uh, except for Adam had picked Rachel and Dave to, to win. So it was just a matter of how many points everybody had spread around. Um, so, so it was interesting. As far as the episode itself goes, there are a couple things I want to mention. First of all, I know you haven't gotten to see it, but uh, you, you remember how last week Vanessa had, had injured her ankle? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so she starts the episode with it, you know, camera can see it starting to swell and turn colors and all of that, but she's just kind of dealing with it. They get to the the d2 no roadblock the a roadblock and um she has to do it because of how they have split them up she's one um ralph has done five she's done four so she has to do this one and do you know what it is it's running on a treadmill and jumping up to cat to pull down uh, rubber chickens from from the air because they're on a japanese game show and right. and the belt speeds up and so it's just she, so she's got this completely messed up ankle and she she did it. She you know she kept falling down. Apparently she fell down a ridiculous number of times. Um, but and they kept showing her like uh, ankle you know shots of her ankle, which is just swollen and huge and purple and must have been ridiculously painful. But she she complete they they came in last of course because it took her so long to do that challenge. But uh, it was it was damn impressive. And out of curiosity, man, what's like. What's like the worst injury in the history of the Amazing Race? I don't know. That would be one to ask Dan about, uh, who writes up our reviews, because he has a much longer history with the show. He's watched a lot more of it than I have. Um, it, it seems like the, they're really due for an amputation of some kind. <laughs> I, I I seriously doubt the 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 powers that be would allow it to get to that point. I don't know if anybody's ever had to leave. Like yeah, I know people have to leave Survivor for health issues every now and again. I don't know if that's come up with uh with this i have a feeling because it's such a condensed time period it's like a matter of a couple weeks you know two three weeks right. uh because they just keep filming one after the other after the other uh and also because they're in such major metropolitan areas so frequently i have a feeling that if anything came up it wouldn't be 
hard to get them help, but right. I don't know. I guess I I was just thinking back to Mark and Bopper and boy, did that yeah, get rough. That, yeah, that's true. I don't know. Yeah, there've definitely been some issues uh, for them this season. Uh, with the, the as far as the final leg goes, uh, Dave and Rachel skipped a a roadblock accidentally. They they were looking for the path they were supposed to follow, and they found the end of the path instead. And so they <laughs> they got to the the finish line, and everybody's cheering. Yay! You're the first team to get here. But you haven't done one of the challenges, so turn around and go back. Now, that just seems like poor race design. No, it, I think it was, they were told specifically where they needed to start following the path, and they just weren't able, did, didn't find it. They were trying to find it, but they weren't able to ask people. Uh, there weren't people around for them to ask the way that there was after they had to come back the second time and so as soon right. as they found the you know the gate that they were supposed to find then they had no trouble but um anyway so they did end up winning anyways but it was uh it was i mean i think that's a first for the show it's pretty crazy um season as a whole i think it, there were some really great challenges the the i would encourage you if you're interested at all to, to watch the finale because there were some awesome challenges they had to mm. they had to repel face down a 45 story building after they they uh, had to crank themselves up the 45-story building uh, with only their arms. Uh, so there's some pretty crazy challenges. Uh, but I think they need to do a better job with casting next time, though, because they're, they, yeah. it didn't really work not, out. Not much, not much of a charm offensive this season. Yeah, definitely not. But um, I, did, I did see an exit interview at HitFix with, uh, with Vanessa and Ralph that I thought was really interesting. And... Uh, and, and sh showed a lot about the, that you know that these people who especially the the couples that end up arguing with each other all the time they're not necessarily just bitchy people it's just when you get put under that kind of strain it, yeah. it, that's that you know that those you know elements to your personality that maybe you're not too proud of will come out and so it was interesting to see to to read you know their their remarks and their their perspective upon having seen themselves on, you know, on TV. And so, I don't know, it was, right. it was really, it was really interesting. There's also a little bit of a background information about what sparked the uh, Vanessa and Ralph and uh, Big Brother team feud, which we didn't see. Right. So that, yeah, we, it was all a little there. bit nebulous. Yeah. Anyway, so, so Amazing Race finale. I'm looking forward. I, I still enjoy the show. I think it's a lot of fun and uh, I look forward to the next season whenever it starts up in the fall, I guess. In like two months. Yeah. <laughs> Lost Girl Mirror Mirror was 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 a really uh, strong episode. It was Bobby Yaga or Bobby Yaga was the um, was the villain, which was really uh, I thought well done. It featured Kenzie. I think you know any of the ones that really feature Bo and Kenzie's relationship are always uh, they always do really well. So I had a lot of fun with that episode. Then I checked in with Castle uh, and and I actually checked in with it last week too, but forgot to talk about it, which was their zombie episode, Undead Again, which was just a lot of fun uh, and was. I enjoy when they do these. Uh, it, it's not dissimilar to to Psych, I would say, the way that Castle does some of these um, more genre-y kind of episodes, um, but just with the more the tone of, of Castle, which works. Anyway, so they had the finale. Castle and Beckett finally got together. It seemed uh, it seemed to work well. I think it set up enough interesting dynamic for to kick off next season without it resolves some things it introduced new things Tomo Pennekit showed up who I enjoy so I would say it was a solid finale I'm sure a lot of Castle fans were very pleased by it and then I'll finish with The Voiced which, which had its uh, final live round finale you know competition and uh, 
So, okay, I have to preface my thoughts on the voice finale with this. Monday night I had a, I had a concert uh, that I played in, and I, I got to play some of the best music in all of opera literature with a group of fantastic singers uh, while being conducted by Sir Andrew Davies, the conductor of the Lyric Opera of Chicago. So I left that, and with some of the best dramatic and comedic, you know, vocal music that exists and then sat down and watched the voice as soon as I got home. So those guys were just kind of screwed. <laughs> At least, you know, how my reading of them was going to be, it was going to be hard to impress me. I thought that most of the, the, the four final singers each sang three times uh, once for their competition song, once as a tribute song to their, their coach. And then once in a duet with their coach for a lot of the people, they actually did better on the other two songs than on their, the the song that they're in contention with the the performance that I think is was the best was Tony Lucas, but the singer who is the best is Juliet Sims. I don't know why she chose to do Freebird as her song. They closed the show out with it, which is kind because of because she's the rock singer and it's a rock song. Yeah, but that seems to be the thinking. Yeah, but she destroyed last week with uh, "It's Man's World." And then to go from that to this one, which there's just not that much for her to do. It's not, you know, I don't, it just, it seemed like a bizarre choice. Uh, she was also under the weather, which didn't help. I would say uh, that the, the, one of the highlights for me was getting to see, I thought that Christina's duet with her singer, Chris Mann, they did the prayer, which is like the most stereotypical thing they could possibly do for those two singers. Um, but, uh, but it was just really great to see her sing with somebody who can keep up with her power-wise because she has such a strong voice and her her teammate is the, the opera singer of the four. So he can just sing for days. And so that was actually really cool. I, I was a little underwhelmed by many of the performances and... Yeah, I just it's it's one of those things where you see you see some really great singers doing some really really hard music, challenging and interesting and emotionally resonant music and then you compare it to I believe I can fly, Josh Groban. Yeah, not gonna work. I mean, why would you why would you pick those songs to be what's going to separate separate you? Anyways, sorry, I I've been well, rambling. Song song choice is generally my biggest pet peeve with singing competitions even more than exploitative editing or mm -hmm. and, you know typecasting or whatever that's always what gets to me yeah well like Juliet Sims did crazy as her like tribute thing to her coach because uh, of CeeLo but they did crazy last year all the the coaches sang crazy and it was awesome so why would you have why would you pick that song when it was performed last year with the lead vocals by Christina Aguilera which is you know, why would you compare, put yourself up to be compared like that? I don't know. Well, to be fair, unless you want to get into his early 90s rap days, there aren't that many choices for CeeLo that are singable. Potentially. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's that's what it is. I, I don't know his back catalog enough. But anyways, uh, so we'll see who America wins. I have a feeling America's going to go with the more generic, less less interesting and less talented Tony Luca. The thing that's most frustrating to me, I guess, is that a lot of the best singers didn't make it to the the final. Um, but so it goes. As they say. So I've been talking for ages now. Uh, so we, we, why don't you start us off with the first of the shows that we both watched, which is 30 Rock. Right. And this was the second of their Queen of Jordan episodes. They're, they they love repetition this season, huh? 
Um, and but I don't know. I actually didn't mind getting another Queen of Jordan episode because I think what I really what I like about these episodes most. I mean, I don't watch uh, terrible Bravo documentary series, so I I I don't I can't attest to how accurate stylistically this is as a parody. But I really enjoy the dynamic of Tracy Jordan's marriage and the way like it's basically solid, but it's solid in this very strange way. And it's it's probably the most reliably funny thing they get they they sort of get him to be involved in, and you know when when you can anchor a whole episode around it, great. And if you have to do it through this sort of mockumentary style, or they feel they have to, I can deal with that. Um, also, Virginia, the 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 small child uh, won me over very quickly. Yeah, that was pretty good. Um, for for me. I agree, actually, about Tracy's marriage. I think that that was the best part of this episode, the most consistently interesting and entertaining. My trouble with with this one was that most... And it was a similar issue I had the first time, though the first time there was a sense of novelty to the episode, so that kind of carried it. For for me, it's, you know exactly where the episode is going with every single plot line because you know it's going to follow... A, a, you know, a parody format, but still a format of one of these shows. So for me, it kills any of the the comedic momentum of of the of the episode. And so while I did really enjoy that that final showdown between Tracy and Angie, the rest of the episode really didn't work for me. I mean, what did you think of the Liz stuff and the Jenna stuff? Oh God, I'm having a hard time remembering most of that stuff. Honestly, the, the everything to do with Tina Fey. Sorry, uh, with Liz, sort of trying to court the affections of this ludicrously rude child uh, worked for me just on a basic level of I enjoy children, apparently. <laughs> um, I don't really remember what uh, what Jake Rakowski was up to, to be honest. I don't know. I thought it was solid enough. But let's move on to uh, Parks and Rec bus tour. Uh, we had right. another another strong showing, I would say, with, with Paul Rudd and uh, Catherine Hahn. What, what did you think? Uh, this definitely felt like, I mean... Last week's, I think we can mostly agree, was a pretty momentous episode. Mm-hmm. This was a much lighter one. Uh, for me, the most notable thing about it, I mean, we do still have Catherine Hahn and Paul Rudd kicking around, but the biggest thing for me was just getting uh, Chris Pratt to be in full-on Burt Macklin mode for an entire episode <laughs> and, to be- and to have a really, really good excuse to do it yeah. was, for me, the the main raison d'etre for this episode, and he just absolutely killed it. I loved everything with him and Jerry, and the, mm-hmm. just the old-school physical humor was, was just really, really well executed. Um, other than that, I mean, the actual contribution to the arc of the election was pretty negligible. But uh, it was definitely a fun little little uh, episode. I think I actually might have liked this better than the debate. I because I enjoyed. I mean, Burt Macklin. Anytime Burt Macklin shows up, that's hilarious. Um, but I also enjoyed Mike O'Malley's uh, appearance and Donna uh, just backing her her Benz, her precious Benz, uh, uh, up into the trucks. I, I liked the. Um, uh, the the stuff with Chris, you know, and and April again a lot. I, I enjoy that dynamic, and and even mm-hmm. just, uh, I think I felt like Paul Rudd really really worked. Just his speech at the end where he starts out by stealing Leslie's story and being an asshole, uh, but then then welcomes her up to you know to to compliment her. You know that that's that's interesting to me. I thought it worked mm-hmm. well. Yeah, I I see what you're saying. Uh, I'm, I still have no idea how mm-hmm. they're going to wrap this up, which is nice. Yeah, I think it could really go either way. 
Yeah, and supposedly they've they have gone both ways in filming it, and and I I think either way is perfectly valid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm very curious to, and I think either way could be a a good way forward. There's talk of NBC doing maybe shorter seasons for its comedies next year. Yeah. Which, I mean, that could actually be great for a show like Parks. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, well, depends on how short they're talking, I guess. Yeah. But I'm hoping that doesn't mean it's in any peril. I'm sort of surprised that 30 Rock's been renewed officially and nothing else has since Parks has actually been getting better ratings. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I would imagine they're just they're trying to iron out, you know, exactly what they're going to do. I imagine with the uncertainty around the office, that's sort of that's affecting just everything. Yeah. Everything, but I we'll I don't we'll we'll see uh we'll see what happens with it. But yeah, I'm definitely I don't I think a, a reduced episode order would help, like a Thirty Rock. I, I feel like some of these other shows that would definitely could benefit from just having thirteen to do deal with. I do think that. Parks has done a, a solid job this season. Maybe it's not quite yeah. as great as last season, but I think they handle the 22 episode order pretty well. So certainly more gracefully than most other comedies do. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll look forward to the finale next week. Maybe you know there's going to be such competition theoretically, assuming everybody delivers for the for the spotlight next week. I mean, just between yes, yes there is Fringe and Parks. I mean, there's there's a lot going on. Um, next we have Eagleheart and is this blues or blues in one of- It's just called Blues, I think. Yeah. And it features Dean Norris. Which was fabulous. Hank from, <laughs> Hank from Breaking Bad. Uh, I don't know. I I love this. I mean I think your the success or failure of this episode will depend entirely on whether or not you find this sort of ironic reversal of of sort of the ghost world dynamic of blues hammer versus genuine blues men sort of turned on its head to be amusing. And I did at least for 11 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know the right length of time for like a one note gag like that. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I, I mean, and it was so nice to see Dean Norris get to just be totally goofy and ridiculous for that length of time. Uh, and of course the usual, uh, sort of surreal reveals that you that you that the show does so well, particularly the ending, yeah, which was wonderfully bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I, I kept waiting for uh, I kept waiting for them to have to pay the go back in and pay the bill, you know, and deal with that, but it didn't didn't come up. But uh, but yeah, no, it was it was fun. I know I mentioned last week that I was curious to see if I rewatched the season premiere, if if I liked it more now, and I did, and I, I rewatched it, but it didn't. It didn't strike me any stronger. So I, I, apparently this is for me just kind of a, a hit and miss show where miss means like, but don't love. Uh, this episode, mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun with it. I really enjoyed Dean Norris. I thought he was great. Um, I, I didn't, it didn't hit me as strongly as the past couple episodes have uh, with Bezor and um, Silly Sammy. <laughs> uh, but I still had a lot of fun with it. And uh, I still like two, three, and four much better than the season premiere. I like about half of the season premiere really works for me. So it's, I, I think that's interesting. I definitely think, you know, these 10 minute, 11 minute shows work really well. And I, I enjoy, uh, I think that's, it's a good amount of time for some of these, especially shows that like web series that uh, are like two or three minute long shows and then get picked up and become TV shows for a half hours. I think maybe the, the correct answer is, to go for one of, for this like eleven minute length instead. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I've I've only known uh, I only know of one show that made the leap from eleven minutes to a half hour, which is uh, Delocated, which is a show I've still not watched. I believe. I'd be curious to see how Metalocalypse did that as well, but then went back. Oh yes. Oh, he went back. That's interesting. I'd be curious to see how it handles those shifts. And I really need to watch some Metalocalypse because I actually do listen to quite a bit of metal and I enjoy these things. I believe it just started up, so they were. You it know, did, yeah. The it it started its new season. Maybe I should I should catch up with it. Yeah. Good stuff. Anyway, this is a this is a backroom discussion. <laughs> uh, next up, we have Awake, which has been troublesome for us lately. I think. Yeah, um, uh, I liked about half this episode. I thought the character stuff was great. Yeah, I think we know which half. Yeah. And the procedural element was dead in the water. Yeah. You you could almost see them being bored with this with with the procedural half of the episode. Mm-hmm. And like, they find the most half-assed, perfunctory way to tie in the procedural aspect with the dual universe aspect. Like it happens yeah. in one scene, and it's so passing that i don't even remember what it was i i'm curious how much of our loss of interest in the past few episodes is how much that ties in with they they haven't had the the shrinks the psychiatrists or psychologists in the past few episodes yeah no uh yeah yeah. and i think that's a major problem yeah uh, especially because they're great uh and 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 because that there's no real platform to explore the show's themes as deeply as we would like mm-hmm. uh, it, I, I, find, I just find it funny how this awake now has the opposite problem from most cop shows which is you know whatever like you know the cop aspect is fine but then they try to get into people's personal lives and it just falls apart and this is exactly the opposite yeah like they're they're involved in this especially with emma and their potential grandchild they're in this sort of you know very touching sort of rabbit hole-esque conundrum and that's really interesting and it's well acted and generally well written mm-hmm. and then the rest is just a mess yeah i will say though that um i enjoyed wilder valorama this week and i also thought that laura innes uh did some really nice work with what she's given here as the the captain uh and who's tied in with this conspiracy element which yeah hopefully they'll they'll get over with that next week but i thought that she did as good as can be expected with what she was given um, the the highlight though is definitely Jason Isaacs and and uh, and Laura Allen though. Yeah, who let let's let's let them graduate to another good show after this, since we we know this is pretty much doomed. Yeah, uh, we'll 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 see about, and I'm hopeful that next week we'll get back into more of the psych- psychological element of of uh, our our leads' experience. Yeah, um, we'll we'll see though. God, I hope this doesn't mean that Laura Allen's going to be one of those people that's constantly in a string of one-season wonders between this and Terriers. Well, it's better than a series of unpicked-up pilots. Oh, yes, that's true. But but let's move on and talk about Fringe Endgame Part 1. Uh, Speaking of things that are causing trouble for us. Yeah, I have my review of this up at, at Sound on Sight, and every time that I... Like I, I waited a while to write it. I, I watched the episode really late, actually, on like Saturday morning, uh, but uh, or really late Friday night, Saturday morning, and and so then I let it sink in over the course of the day and watched it again before I wrote my review. And the further I got away from that initial viewing, and then a- after the the second viewing, the more disappointed I I am with this episode and what it means for this season as a whole and i don't know we'll see of course maybe all of this will be changed by part two of the finale but for me i don't i can't see how 
I was really, I had to keep reminding myself that I did actually like about half of the episode. It's just that the part that I didn't like was really frustrating. Yeah, I mean, David, <laughs> this has been a, uh, if you listen to the to our Avengers cast, you'll know this was a bad week for master plans of villains. And the David Robert Jones plan was just, it was so convoluted and him ending up being in league with Belly, who's apparently now a thing again, mm-hmm. was not not terribly compelling. The The whole thing with Astrid getting shot is shocking for a second, and then you're like, wait a second, we already saw her in the in the future, so yeah. she's going to be fine, unless she's a clone well, or her alternate self or something, I don't know. They made very sure to keep the camera on that lemon cake while it regenerated itself last week or this week so i would be surprised if that didn't come into play i basically everything surrounding the lemon cake is where i, well, I run into problems that whole scene was so ridiculous and i know that it's a it's a fine line right because the whole show operates on fake science yeah and that's fine but then the whole let's use cortexafan on this pig brain which we then nip. puree because there were certainly no chunks of pig brain in that cake so it must have been yeah. destroyed. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And it- and then we can lift the prints. And then you're, you're right in your review that the almond print is almond colored. Is orange. <laughs> and the other prints look like, are, are black as if they are have been done exactly the same as by. It's, it's almost like saying, look, these are regular fingerprints. This is a special fingerprint. It's, it's, yeah. it's yeah. not good. The, the, the whole episode was just full of weird little problems. Well, just it it just seemed not not half-assed in the in the way that that awake was just ill considered. It, it felt to me like like they got they had been building their season, and then somebody said, "Holy crap! I just got off the phone with Leonard Nimoy's people. He'll come back." And so, like, oh, we better kill off. Do- but, oh, but only if we make him the main villain. Yeah. So so they kill off. Uh, uh, <laughs> Dr. J, as they call him previously on David Robert Jones, um, and 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 so therefore, every this entire season of building him up as this mastermind and and villain. No, actually, he's the lackey. He's the sidekick who doesn't know the larger plan, and has just been executing everything. Except that that has not been even slightly hinted at all season, and it removes all of this this potential and this menace that they've built up i mean i think and i think jared harris does his best with it i think like if i was only seeing this episode if i hadn't seen the rest of the season i would absolutely believe his role as the the believer sidekick you know right. except that it doesn't mesh at all with the character we've seen before no i totally agree so, so yeah we'll see what they can salvage next week let's let's mention um, though some of the things they get right though first of all astrid okay, gets to do sure. something besides Fine. hold test tubes it's nice to see her kick a little ass but the, even that like it was for like the five seconds that she's kicking ass and not getting shot i was really excited and then she gets shot and then she gets shot way to go guys uh, but i i thought the what did you think of the cortexafan thing with uh with olivia she can she's puppet master person now yeah, that was sort of fun. Although you had to get over the fact that David Robert Jones was beating the shit out of yeah out of a much younger, spryer <laughs> fellow, Joshua which Jackson, <laughs> which doesn't really I make sense. Was having trouble with. 
Um, but the scenes with Olivia and Peter at the beginning, I thought were lovely, were really nice, really showed their relationship, and the actors were really strong in them. I liked Rebecca Mater. I liked the Nanites. Yeah, I'm curious to see how they're going to fold her back in next week. Yeah, we'll we'll see. We'll see. But Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't, who hasn't seen, seen the promo. The promo. She she, she's back. Um, but, yeah. So so I it's one of those things, like I was saying earlier, I had to keep reminding myself that I did actually really like the character beats, like the, the building up that they were clearly doing to Astrid of her moments with Walter, I thought were really nice. Well, well I think it's just that so it was so backloaded with annoying stuff mm-hmm. that you sort of forgot the sort of decent, sort of smaller stuff that came earlier. Yeah. Um, let, let's move on. Let's talk about something that I have a feeling we both enjoyed. Bob's Burgers, Moody Foodie. Yay, Bob's Burgers. Is Bob's Burgers never not at least a little bit fun? Mm-hmm. I don't think it is. Uh, th- I, again, I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm a broken record whenever we talk about Bob's Burgers. I love how lovingly strange this show is, and I feel like if if someone, if some enterprising soul were to stitch together all of the dream sequences and fantasy sequences in Bob's Burgers into some sort of Lynchian sort of surreal scape, it would just be the greatest thing ever. Because uh, Bob's little dream about what his cubicle life would be like was so great <laughs> and so unlike anything else on TV right now. Oh, and uh, also, I, I just love that. So dissimilar from the other dream sequences we've gotten. Yeah, like there was no, there were no overt gags. Just like just small bits of droll humor that were that played so nicely off of everything else. Uh, that was great. It's weird, and again, like the. W- there, I, there's no other show for which the credits are mm-hmm. always a joy because they're always so shocking. My favorite inclusion was Michael Madsen as Kevin Costner, <laughs> which was literally one line of dialogue. Yep. Uh, I love this show. Yeah, I think this is probably my least favorite episode of the season so far, but it's I still really liked it. Um, the It didn't quite work for me. It went to a crazier place. Then I feel like the show usually does at least with its uh, with its leads. I mean, I may, I don't know. Maybe it's just this week. It just kind of struck me a little differently. But uh, by the time they're they're uh, they're doing the the Reservoir Dogs, you know, homage, uh, it was just seemed so extreme. You know, they, their actions seemed so extreme that it didn't necessarily work as much for me. But I did really, of course, I always enjoy the kids. I think they're they're great. And uh, mm-hmm. well, and I guess I was somewhat. I initially was turned off by the commentary about criticism because I feel like it's such a common thing that shows do every now and again where they complain about criticism and they say, ah, oh, nobody criti-, you know, there aren't critics for plumbers, except that there are now. You can go to websites. There there are websites devoted specifically like to to giving reviews about every, you know, every restaurant, every service right, profession. Right. And so it just feels kind of, but, but they also did a good job of saying, well, yes, but you do, you reuse noodles and you do, you know, so I, yeah. And what do you think about that? I, I feel like all contemporary takes on criticism have to measure up to Ratatouille. Mm. And by that standard, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that insightful, but I, I can't say I had much problem with it. I was too busy just sort of enjoying the absurdity of it all. Okay. Yeah, I mean, a, a, for a weaker Bob's Burgers episode, at least for me, is still, you know, one of the, the more entertaining things on TV right now. Totally. Yeah. Uh, speaking of things we're lately finding entertaining, Girls on HBO. 
um, which I noticed the reception to this episode was somewhat muted compared to some of the others, which is funny because I thought it had some problems, but I still really, uh, really enjoyed it. I think the biggest issue for me with this episode is there's some serious suspension of disbelief action going on with the Lena Dunham character and like we're really supposed to buy that she doesn't pick up on the fact that the, that the drawn on eyebrows look hideous and she keeps them on all day which is you know it's funny it's a good comic effect but it does sort of hurt the show's sort of gritty realism aspect a little bit I think uh other than that I mean I thought this was sort of a great horror show episode for basically every male character not played by James LaGrosse yeah, I, I I was similarly puzzled by the negative reactions I saw. I thought this was a, a good episode, maybe not quite as good as last week, but definitely stronger than the pilot, for example, for me. I thought there was a lot of really great, there were a lot of really great moments. I was particularly impressed with Lena Dunham and her, her scene with her terrible not-boyfriend I thought yeah. that was, it was, that was beautifully played. I like the development of, at the end of the episode with the, the diary and the song. And I think there's a lot interesting going on there with, uh, with gender roles and, and, uh, and friendships. And I, I think that's really fertile ground or could be really fertile ground for the next several episodes and really has interesting things for them to explore as opposed to something that you would, for example, see on sex in the city, which I enjoy the sex in the city, the series, not the movies, but it definitely didn't go into these kind of deeper uh, waters as far as friendship and and goes. So I, I I don't know. I thought it worked. I thought it was good. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I I liked most of the stuff with her at work as well. And sort of her Mm -hmm. strange new, sense of camaraderie well and even uh, just the exploration of wait it's okay for my boss to grope me but it's not it's okay for me to be treated like crap at work but not at home i'm supposed to stand up for myself in one place and not the other i thought i mean i thought it's interesting yeah there's yeah it's it's definitely it's it's hitting a groove i think hopefully yeah. and uh speaking of hitting a groove we got veep which i liked a lot again this week i have to say mm-hmm. yeah i, I uh, do too this this felt and I I've, I'm sort of echoing a comments comments I've seen elsewhere. This felt more thick of it like hmm. to me this this week. I don't know if that's that's it's, well it's clearly not just me, but I I felt like the comic rhythms were a little bit more assured this week. I did think the first few minutes were a little bit dry in terms of laughs, but really over time they uh, they started to accumulate for me. I I could easily drop the did the president call gag. Yeah, it's not it's not accumulating. It's not getting funnier. Laughs. No, it's not getting funnier with each episode. Maybe it's going to take like twenty. I don't know, but it's but at that point it's probably not worth it. Um, I love the addition of her daughter. I think that's a fantastic thing to have around. And mm-hmm. I thought I thought their her interaction with the rest of the staff and sort of and with Selena was was really interesting to watch. And you you noted you noted also last week that you enjoyed people being good at their jobs, and we get some more of that this yeah. week with sort of them shepherding the um, the clean jobs initiative. Also, I like that there's that they're developing longer, longer sort of term, yeah. longer term sort of plot threads and character threads as well. I don't know. I'm I'm really enjoying the way this is developing. Yeah, I think that the cast is continuing to come together and become more comfortable in their roles. Like you said, I enjoyed Dan doing good work this week and 
earning his his job also uh the i mean i wasn't as interested in the daughter i felt like uh she i know she their character is supposed to be a wet blanket um at least because she has such different priorities than the mom and obviously the veep is a, a, a somewhat terrible mother uh but uh but uh though i guess compared to some of the mothers we're gonna see we'll talk about later this uh today but uh yeah anyways sorry moving on uh i, I just it did they didn't that didn't work for me as well it just i i liked the scenes just between the daughter and and selena Catherine and selena mm -hmm. i thought those worked um i don't know i it I would be okay with her showing up every now and again. I hope she's not too strong of a presence, though. Oh, I'm sure she won't be. And I have to say, most improved for me so far is Tony Hale. Like, I was really sort of, an, like, annoyed with his character, in, especially in the first episode, mm -hmm. more so than even you're supposed to be. And I really just, I like the way they explain his character this, this week as sort of the, the, the chit-chat whisper or whatever it is they, they call him. Yeah, I could have seen that receiving line for half the episode and been happy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so I'm I'm very glad to see that he's sort of settled into the the ensemble as you would expect him to because he's great. Yeah, he's he's pretty great. Uh, let's move on to Mad Men and Lady Lazarus, and let's just kick off with uh, the Beatles. Uh, yeah, so this is what two hundred and fifty thousand dollars gets you apparently. <laughs> uh, it, it it's funny. I I mean I, I I heard some very positive things about this episode, which I thought was mostly fine, but I did think that the use of Tomorrow Never Knows was actually brilliant. And I'm not, I'm on record as not being the biggest Beatles fan, but I, I loved that, first of all, them talking about how a million other bands sound like the Beatles and then naming off some, ba some bands that do tangentially sound like, you know, early Beatles and then the zombies who are correctly identified as a bit of an outlier. And, and then of course, and then having sort of Don be presented with, well, okay, well that was the Beatles then and here, this is new Beatles and that's sort of. And then uh, Megan very specifically pointing out, oh, he start here uh, with the last track on the record, which is by far the most out there sounding thing. And the greatest thing to me about the sequence, besides its sort of juxtaposition with everyone else's uncertainty, is that Don doesn't like fall head over heels for it. He's just kind of like, ah, it's not doing anything for me, which was great. He just turns it off midway through and then strolls out. And then, of course, they have to use it again on the credits because they paid yeah. shitloads of money for it. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I loved many things about that sequence. The rest of the episode was fine, although everything about the Pete Campbell story was as hard to watch as it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of watching him backslide has been painful. But, uh, I, I mean, yeah. Uh, to me, a solid episode with a, with a pretty amazing ending. Yeah, the uh, as far as the Beatles goes, I think it's smart to, to use some. I, I feel like if they didn't have some Beatles in the in the soundtrack at some point it would feel false for a show that's set in in the 60s and for people whose job it is to be up on on pop culture and on on what's going on for particularly young people but also just across America I mean the the pervasiveness of the Beatles at this time if they didn't if they didn't address it or talk about it in some way it just it would feel really really false so I'm glad that they just dove in and you know, forked out the $250,000 to use that one song. It's pretty ridiculous. Uh, um, as for the rest of the episode, I, I spent, I thought it was really well crafted. Actually. I thought the tone was very carefully established. I kept waiting for, for Megan to fall down an elevator shaft. 
after they <laughs> after they showed her back into an elevator and then the next you know button just if if she had backed into that elevator she would have died well not to mention the many mentions of suicide many mentions of suicide well and the title of the episode comes from Sylvia Plath poem, which is about, you know, has a lot of Holocaust imagery, but is also about death and, you know, all this. So, yeah, I mean, I kept waiting for, you know, something, especially with how well Don seems to have handled the Megan doesn't want to work here situation. Yeah, there's this very, there's this like playful morbidity to the episode, which is also reflected in the uh, In Tomorrow Never Knows. So, yeah, it's definitely an episode that grows on you the more that you think about it and the more you sort of have time to luxuriate in what exactly it's done, I think. Yeah, I think it's one that I won't have a firm opinion on until the season's over. and we Because right. it feels like a transition episode. So depending on where we see our characters going, I think that may affect how I see this episode. Yes, but I think we can agree that it doesn't feel like it lost a step this episode. No, no, it wasn't. It, it was sort of, it was a similar experience for me to Community, where it just felt like it was sort of there. It was interesting. It was doing um, interesting things. It was well put together. Uh, the dissolves were interesting, a different, slightly different visual style than they usually use. Um, mm-hmm. the performances were all strong, but I kept waiting for something. I felt like something else was going to happen, and it never really did in the episode. So, mm-hmm. but we'll see. There you go. So, speaking of things that we watch, but not necessarily things that we like. Oh, I'm gonna wait before you get into Smash. Uh, I Smash. we're gonna mention that Game of Thrones. We will have the Game of Thrones podcast out uh, later tonight. We're gonna record that tonight and put it up. So it, that'll be out later this week on the 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 Sound On Site website or or on the feed for the Televerse. But continue. You were saying right. So smash uh i'm gonna keep it short because we've been giving the show way too much time uh some of it was approaching acceptability uh, i'm always happy when september song shows up but uh can we talk about that church sequence sure. and how insanely misguided and crass and horrible that was like i i can i guess maybe their hearts were in the right place but i'm thinking it's more likely that that they weren't uh, just the whole idea of having a bunch of characters who have never expressed any interest in the existence of anything outside of themselves, let alone a, a deity, suddenly being like, oh, yeah, let's go to church. The show's in peril. And then they all go and uh, and they pretend, I, I don't know, everything about it was so false and so exploitative and and just creepy. Well, Tom has expressed uh, his faith in the past. That wasn't a surprise. That's something we knew about the character. I think it fits with Karen. I think it makes sense for her, given you know the incredibly complex shading we've received from about her <laughs> past of Midwestern girl. It, it make that makes sense. That accounts for three characters. How about the other two dozen? I think the the quick line. Uh, between Julia's husband, whose name escapes me at the moment, and Frank. Frank, between Frank and Tom, explains their appearance just because Tom's trying to get to be her in the same room with him. And so right. that's, they're not there for church. They're there for that. But all the other friends, there's no reason for them. You know, there's 
Yeah. It doesn't make, and they don't even get up and sing. Like, it's not even like, they're like, come to church. We can do, we'll have you guys sing. It'll be fun. It'll be, uh, take a, a, a load off, you know? And, and I'm sorry, but they're, they're young New York actors. They don't care about Jesus. <laughs> I promise you. It, you know, it, I like the, that there isn't a cynicism to going to church or to faith in the way that some might expect for a show which presumably has characters, none of whom are particularly religious and most of whom don't give a crap. <laughs> yeah. So I, I like that they, you know, sort of like with Friday Night Lights, how they, they showed in that series how uh, faith and religion is a significant and important part of many people's lives and it means something to them and just because it doesn't mean something to anyone else doesn't make it any more or less valid. Um, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I didn't, I felt like their motivations for being there were completely meaningless and didn't make any sense and were out of character. They were absent and actually, and the fact of the absence of motivation made the sequence itself seem cynical to me. Interesting. Just, okay. Just another way of, just like the Bollywood sequence, just it was so out of place, just another way for them to pander to a demographic and okay. sort of try to be inclusive in a way that just feels awkward and weird and wrong. I don't know. It's <laughs> that whole thing just gave me the creeps and dev sucks. And, yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry, but Julia sucks too. And her scenes with Tom are technically better than other parts of the episode. But all I can think of is this is your fault, not Tom's. I think that the one good scene this week was the, the, the sit down between Julia and Tom at the theater I thought it was really interesting. I thought both characters had very valid points and were mm, raising concerns sure. that that make sense. I, I mean, I could I can see where both of them are coming from, and I can see where the conflict is, and I think in some ways they are both right. And I think that's what you need for to have an interesting conflict. Well, I think in many more ways Tom is right, but yeah, <laughs> that's just me. Yes, but I I mean yeah I obviously. I would agree with the two of them. I would say that Tom is in the right, but I also understand and value Julia's ex expectation of loyalty from her best friend. Yeah. I don't know. She's, I don't, her character is just so childish. I can't get over it. Yeah. Yeah. And but I, I it's, it's just, it's a huge block for me. So, um, well, I, I think, uh, it's clear that Ellis poisoned Rebecca. Uh, so, uh, we'll, I was actually thinking Ellis or maybe Ivy feeling guilty trying to get Karen the part, but... No, nah, I don't think so. Either way. I think it's yeah. Ellis. You think that's too much thinking for this yes, show? Yes, I, I do. Yeah, anyway. Uh, God, we always talk about this too show long. too long. Done. We're done. God. No more talking. We're done. Donezo. We're, we're oh. going to go. We're going to listen to some music. We're going to come back and spotlight Sherlock, A Scandal in Belgravia. So we'll be right back.
That was Staying Alive by the Bee Gees, which was featured early in this uh, week's episode of uh, Sherlock, A Scandal in Belgravia, which aired on PBS. I know it aired over in uh, in, in England right at the beginning of the year. On New Year's Day, I believe, was, was when this particular episode aired. But we finally got it over on this side of the pond. I love Sherlock Holmes. I have been reading, you know, I've read all of the, the Holmes stories from when the time I was a kid. This is, I, I love Stephen Moffat and his work with Doctor Who. So this is right up my alley. This is like perfect for me. I also loved the entire first season. Where do you fall with Sherlock Holmes, with Sherlock the series, with any, with any of this stuff? Uh, I don't have any particular affinity towards Sherlock Holmes, the character. I don't read. So uh, <laughs> that's oh you laugh. Uh, so I I I don't I don't have time to read, or at least I haven't in years. I I don't have I don't think I've ever read any of the other uh, original Conan Doyle stories. I did see the first and third episodes of the first season. Don't ask me why. Uh, when we got them at the shop, and I thought they were pretty solidly entertaining. Not not revolutionary or revelatory, but but good fun. And I thought this was also good fun, although it seemed to me a little bit more aesthetically interesting than the first uh, season episodes that I saw. I mean, just in terms of the uh, the visualizations of what goes on in Sherlock's head, especially when he's you know in various states of mental awareness, I thought was interesting. It also interesting to contrast with the Guy Ritchie films, which uh, well, actually, sorry, film. I never did see the second one, which there are some. Obviously, there's major differences between them. The uh, the Moffat approach seems much more faithful in terms of uh, in terms of characterization, I would say, and character relationships probably than the Richie is. But they do sort of have similar ideas about how to represent just how fast uh, Sherlock Holmes' brain moves in terms of you know using slow motion and uh, sort of th- this this series does with text what the Richie film does with narration sort of having him make these very minute uh detailed sort of inferences about anything uh and of course the richie's more violent but this is sort of darker in different ways um so yeah th- th- it's definitely a very fun and very brisk 90 minutes of, of television yeah and uh i will just say i haven't seen the guy richie version i saw the trailer and had a pretty strong sense that I would spend the entire movie getting angry at this take on Sherlock Holmes, so I did not see it. I cannot attest to its, you know, quality or frustration level. Uh, I, I, between narration and text, I will always take text on the screen. I think that that works really well to show uh, Sherlock's thought process and and uh, also to to. Uh, to not need to slow down too much from the the way that everybody else is seeing, you know, what, what's going on. I thought that, of course, they, they've been using that that um, that tool since the first season, and so to see it sort of uh, uh, t- twisted here with the woman um, Irene Adler, as played by Laura Pulver, uh, when she comes out and he just has question marks, he he can't. You know, I thought it was really mm-hmm. it was really clever and interesting. Uh, as a fan of the books, I really enjoy all of the the little Easter eggs thrown in. Of course, all the different titles to to Watson's blog are 
twists on titles of actual Holmes stories. So the geek interpreter, the Greek inter interpreter, the speckled blonde, the speckled band, you know, so these are, those are little fun elements to, to catch if you, uh, if you know the stories. Also when Holmes goes to, uh, to Irene Adler's place and uh, fakes being uh, what a priest uh, in the book, in the story that actually that works and, and and so to see that twisted here was so much fun. Mm -hmm. um, but the biggest, I, I think Benedict Cumberbatch is fabulous as Sherlock, but I think the single biggest strength that this series has over other adaptations of Sherlock Holmes is is Watson and is Martin Freeman's performance as, as John Watson. I think that it's so easy for him to be marginalized or to become the, the butt of jokes just because he's not, you know, he's standing next to Sherlock Holmes. But I think they've done a really great job of showing his strengths and showing why these two people like each other, why they spend time together, how Sherlock hasn't managed to push him away when he's destroyed pretty much every relationship around him. Mm -hmm. um, and again, um, I, I agree that Watson is, uh, is Martin Freeman is fantastic, always has been, uh, most likely always will be something that I found interesting when uh, the Richie uh, Holmes came out was, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a bit of a kerfuffle around uh, Robert Downey Jr. claiming that there's no reason that Sherlock Holmes couldn't be gay. Uh, I don't know if you've okay. ever heard about that. Like there's nothing about his character that says, according to Downey Jr., like there's no reason that's, that's necessarily an invalid mm -hmm. interpretation. Yeah. And the estate, the, the Conan Doyle estate was not happy about it. Uh, and shock and we, astonishment. And we once again here get the sort of suggestion that no, not not necessarily explicitly that he's gay, but that Watson and Holmes have this un, have this closeness that's not really appropriate for an average friendship. Um, so I thought that was sort of an interesting thing to have turn up. Although I do have to take exception to something, and I know that other people have said this too, and I think they're correct. Um, Irene Adler is, of course, here is played by uh, Lara Pulvey. That's her name. Um, Pulver. Pul Lara Pulver, sorry. Uh, who I think does a, a spectacular job for with the character as written. I don't... I, I think that making the character gay, as she explicitly states that she is when she talks to Watson, is troublesome in a way because it's sort of... There's a really long and storied history of sort of people with aberrant psychological profiles who also are quote-unquote aberrant in terms of sexuality. And that kind of throws her character in line with that in a way that I don't think they really intend to. But I sort of... I feel like it's a distraction from what's interesting about the character. Uh, I don't know. What did you think about that? Because of what we get later with, with her and with Holmes... Um, I don't necessarily take her at her word, Adler. That is, um, so I don't, I don't see that as much of a, an issue. I just don't. I, I don't. I don't really I, I see, see a, where you're coming. I from. don't really see a reason for her to be lying about it. And she makes many references to her sort of dalliances with women. And also, if you take her as not lying, then her then her extreme affection for Sherlock also sort of beckons another age-old um yes you know movie Concern. lesbian trope of oh she just hasn't found the right man yet which uh, yes. it's it's and treading that would be why i don't yeah, it's treading a thin line yeah for yeah i mean it 
I guess I would have to watch it again with that, keeping an eye out for that. I didn't, given, you know, that I am such a, a Holmes fangirl, and so there was so much other, you know, so much other stuff going on in the episode, and I also was just more appreciating or focusing on for Adler the strength of the performance and just how, uh, just how well they adapted the idea of Adler and of that relationship and of someone who is truly, uh, if not an equal, the closest thing we're going to get to Holmes. Um, I guess there's the Moriarty angle there too, but yeah, you know, I really enjoyed watching that, that performance. Yeah. And so that's what I, my energy was. Yeah. It, towards. Putting aside the questionable stuff, I agree that she's fantastic. Um, there, there were a couple other things in the episode that kind of bugged me. I mean, the whole reveal of Mycroft and the scheme with the bodies and the plane was just this side of ridiculous for me. Like, it just seemed like it was way more hassle than just preventing the plane from blowing up. I don't know. That's just where my head went with that. Uh, other than that, I mean, I, I didn't really have any uh, major plot issues. Yeah, I thought that, I mean, that was fine for me. Uh, I... Maybe it's because I'm putting it in that context of, of arch schemes and villain villainy that you know sort of comes with Holmes, uh, that that didn't bother me at all. But yeah, I sort of just went with that. I, I love uh, Mark Gatiss's performance as Mycroft as well. Mm-hmm. By the way, I, I really like that they've uh, so strongly increased his presence in the the this series. And one of the things I think is fab- fabulous about this particular episode is I love the the concern shown for Sherlock by Gatiss, by, sorry, by Mycroft and, uh, and, and Watson and, and, uh, Miss Hudson as well. And that, you know, that they don't talk about, uh, they specifically his drug use, but the fact that they, the moments, you know, that there are, they're clearly on strong lookout for him to relapse and kill himself with an overdose mm-hmm. accidentally, you know, like, so the fact that there is really, se- there are really serious you know, yeah, and sides and Mycroft's, to, to this character. Mycroft's sort of blend of scheming and concern, I thought was was really fun to watch. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch. I'm you know, I'm gonna take care of my brother, but I'm also gonna be you know shadowy and shady this entire time, yeah. also, which was an, an interesting blend. Yeah, absolutely. I also really loved because, especially, uh, I mean, Holmes has a history. The character, and I, you could say the author for the writing, but definitely the character is a somewhat misogynistic character. He has no respect for women at all. As far as being intellectual equals or any of that, the only woman he's ever had any sort of respect or interest in is Irene Adler, at least in in, in the books. And I'm sure that there are Holmesians out there who will disagree with me, and I look forward to your emails, actually. That would be great to hear from you. Um, but I I like how much care was put into this episode to show... That this Sherlock, is, he may be, you know, have Asperger's or whatever, but he does truly, really care for the women in his life. And so this, this, his moment with Holly at the Christmas party, I thought was was excellent with his protectiveness of Mrs. Hudson and also his his knowledge of her, his understanding of her, the fact that he knows her so much better than than Watson even he reads what she needs in that moment after being held hostage yeah. well so much better than John does I think it's interesting uh, he, he doesn't do nearly as good a job with Molly who he has trouble caring about let alone caring for but uh you, yeah you can see that it's not really his fault he just doesn't really know how to process it well and that he when he goes too far 
he he realizes it he immediately snaps back yeah and you can tell he is so genuinely sorry for the pain that he has caused her yeah even if he you know so so i i really appreciated that that moment and because and i also you can see how because the way he interacts with for example sarah watson's girlfriend and Uh, which girlfriend would that be very different the one with the dog right one (laughs) Uh, but so so just little touches like that I thought were were really nice. Also, we had staying alive as the music. I love the 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 opening conversation with Moriarty on the phone just because I just got the sense, especially uh, you know thinking back on it, that you you know Irene Adler programmed that song into his phone to be the ringtone, much like she programmed the sigh or whatever for for home. Oh, that is not a rings. sigh, Miss. And 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 he's he's so frustrated, and he, you can tell he hates that ringtone. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought it was yeah. so much. I fun. mean, the whole walk back from the cliffhanger was kind of, all like almost transparently, just yeah. We mm-hmm. didn't really have a good way out of this. We're just gonna we're just gonna walk it back. We didn't even think we were gonna do this again. It's sort of the sense that I got from it. But we're here, so let's just pretend this didn't happen. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was fine. Yeah. No, with no, it, it, it was. No, yeah. I see. Yeah. They didn't make a huge deal out of it. They got it over in, in three minutes and moved on. Mm-hmm. I, I've also mentioned I enjoyed the Buckingham Palace. I thought the the visual uh, explanation for the boomerang worked really well. Yeah. Uh, and, and and all that. So I so I think you're right. I think there is more flair to this season. It's like they're more confident and more willing to 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 experiment with uh with what they're doing i also really like the music i'll, I'll add in too i love that that theme the main title theme is fabulous and the way it's used i think gives such a spirit of adventure to the series mm-hmm. it works really well i agree um oh and then i guess the last thing i'll ask what did you think about the ending the uh the terrorist cell reveal is that what we're talking about the not quite dead uh though that was definitely i i, I would have been just as happy honestly with sort of the amb- the ambiguity of the text and sort of Holmes mm-hmm. maybe knowing or not knowing what's going on. I mean, going for the rollicking adventure ending was also good. Uh, I don't know. I I enjoy darkness and ambiguity, so I'm I'm easy to please in that sense. Yeah, with with so few episodes per season, and apparently they're going to stick to three ninety minute per season. Uh, in going forward, when they're able to get around the Hobbit scheduling, so that they can shoot some more. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily want to see Adler come back anytime soon, um, but and and I would have been just fine with an ambiguous ending or just with uh, it seeming like she was dead, and then if they bring her back, they they cut back, and then you see that he actually, you know, I think I would have been fine with that too. Well, I think if they're gonna bring her back, it's better to do it in this episode rather than because if okay. they do it in another one, it seems like they're just making crap up as they they're go along. Rewrite. Fair enough, fair enough. But yeah, so I, I really enjoyed this episode. If you haven't seen any Sherlock, you should check it out. It's on um, PBS for the next two weeks. Next week is The Hounds of Baskerville, which uh, I, are you familiar with the original? No, in any no, I'm not. Way or, no? 
Oh, this is going to be fun. I can't wait to talk about it next week. Right. Uh, I'm feeling we're not. it's going to get kicked out of the spotlight, though. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see with so many different finales. But So let's just hit a few show notes here. We uh, Our intro and outro music is Sweet Petite by The Bicycles. We have the, a post up for this at soundonsite.org. Please leave us comments there. We would love to know what you think uh, of the different episodes this week. Particularly, I'm curious about the more nebulous episodes. So let me know what you think of Community, of, of Mad Men, uh, you know, if, you know, some of these different ones are, where, uh, where at least for me, I'm not quite sure where I fall. I'd love to hear where you guys are on these episodes. Um, any predictions for the finales too would be fun. And then, uh, we're up on iTunes with an M4A and an MP3 feed. And just as a quick reminder, the M4A feed has chapter breaks, so you can skip around. And if you're worried about spoilers, you can just skip on past uh, a chunk of the show that you don't care to listen to. Um, and but that doesn't work on all devices, so that's why we have both, and those are both up in iTunes. You can leave us a review or a rating there; it would really help us out. We'd be great to to hear from some of you guys that we haven't heard from yet. Let us know what you think of the show. Uh, we are also up on Current; you can find us streaming there, and uh, as well as, of course, we're streaming at Sound on Site. Um, we're both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse. You I'm are at Sucker Howl. And uh, do we have a final a final question this week? I I I, I like your idea of just getting feedback on some of the weirder efforts this week and seeing where seeing where people are falling on them and also also i'm curious to see i'm actually particularly curious about people's reactions to girls and if and if people Mm -hmm. are if people were really like awkward about this (laughs) past episode which seems like is what happened even though we're quite positive on it yeah yeah, so so let us know what you think. Um, oh, and finally, before I forget, you can also email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. So we're going to take a, a break, listen to some Beatles, Tomorrow Never Knows, because we don't have to pay $250,000 for it. <laughs> so, so we'll be uh, right back after that with our talk with Chris Gore from Attack of the Show. <laughs> Back with the Televerse, this is Kate Kalsik, as ever with Simon Howell, and this week we decided to skip the DVD shelf because we got a chance to talk with uh, Chris Gore, who's a comedian, an author, and who many of you might know from Attack of the Show, where he does his DVD Tuesday segments. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I have been dying to be on your show because I've never done a podcast where I get to talk about DVDs. So I, I it was actually that was what I wanted to start uh, talking with you about because I imagine it's a very different thing to be uh, just a, a straight up film critic and then to be a, a DVD critic. Uh, wh- how's that experience different for you? Well, it's it's weird. Like I've never, first of all, I've never considered myself much of a critic. And by that, I mean, there are people who um, are good at criticism and, and, and like, that's what they do. And I'm not sure that that's my strength. If I had to rate myself as a critic, I'd give myself three out of five stars <laughs> just 
to be quite frank. But um, but ultimately, like I'm all, I'm more of a fan and an advocate. Like I really love to get behind stuff, and I'm also when I hear myself reviewing stuff, I'm, I'm it's, sometimes it's more of a critique of like, well, the story would have been made better by doing this, and so it's more of a coming at it from a, a different angle, but I've all, always been like a collector and, you know, especially like, you know, I worked at a video store growing up as a kid. Uh, when I was in high school, I lied about my age to work at a place called Thomas uh, Film Classics um, when I was 16 because they carried adult uh, VHS tapes. So they couldn't hire anyone under 18. So I just lied. At, this was at a time where you, can get away, you could get away with that. And then I worked there and I would collect, I had a VHS collection. Before that, I actually had a collection of films on Super 8, Super, which is crazy. But um, I had Night of the Living Dead, the entire feature on Super 8. Um, I also had like films like Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back on Super 8. So I really just came at it from being a geek collector. And then, of course, going through a Laserdisc phase, collecting everything on Laserdisc, the, the precursor. And that's really where special features evolved was, you know, having these commentaries. And of course, a lot of that gets repurposed on the DVD editions. But there's definitely a different about like when you are reviewing a DVD, and I think I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this too. When you're reviewing a DVD, I already know I, I like the movie. I either kind of like the movie, it's okay, or I love the movie and I have to have this on DVD. But I'm always looking at what's that special feature? What's that thing that enhances the experience? Is it like, you know, some DVDs are so good, like uh, the Taxi Driver, Criterion Edition. It's like taking a master class taught by Martin Scorsese. You know, it's it's incredible. So I buy DVDs for the special features because you can see the movie in any form. It's fine. You can see the movie. I buy DVDs because it's a movie I like and it's a movie that has special features that I, I will experience. There's, I mean, like even the Star Wars Episode One DVD, which I'm not a fan of. The, 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 the Star Wars prequels have their problems, obviously. Yeah. But there's a special feature on the uh, Episode One DVD, the original one, where it's a documentary, and I believe it's called The Beginning. And it's not filled with that sort of stirring Star Wars music. It's almost shot like Errol Morris does when he does a documentary. He's just fly on the wall. There's no voiceover. There's no one telling you what's going on. It's fly on the wall. It's production sound. Um, and it just sort of guides you. And I know that the guy who made shot that there's a much longer version of it that he thought would get theatrically released as it is there's like a less than hour version that's on the original episode one standard def dvd that is amazing because you see george lucas saying things like you know and this jar jar character is going to be so great you know if the audience loves him he'll be awesome so it's like these things that are like in <laughs> retrospect kind of hilarious so that documentary is the best doc best special feature on all the star wars dvds i'm not talking about the deleted scenes so I really, I get the DVDs for the deleted scenes. And also I collect DVDs where I have this fear in my head that like, I'll never be able to see this movie again. So I'll get things on DVD. If it's something that like, there's a movie by Kaveh Sahidi called I am a sex addict, which is a brilliant. I've seen that. I've seen it. I, that not. movie, I get choked up and I will, uh, I will start to cry at the end of that movie when you realize the story he's telling you and the moment that he's about to experience. I'm not going to ruin it, but you feel it's this really weird thing about this guy who's sex-obsessed and he has sex with prostitutes and he's kind of an asshole and he's revisiting his relationships, but it steps out, breaks the fourth wall, steps out of it. It's experimental. It has animation. It's part documentary. It's personal autobiography. It's amazing film. And by the end, you're, it's so moving. 
I own that on DVD. And there's a lot of movies, a lot of things I own on DVD that I'm afraid I'll, I, I, I won't be able to see, that it won't be downloadable, uh, it won't be streaming on Netflix. You know, um, if it's a movie that I like, fine. If I can find it on Netflix, cool. I don't need to own it. I own it for the special features. Sometimes the packaging. I have the Alien Blu-ray box set because it has a it has the face hugger egg and it lights up. It's kind of cool. <laughs> um, and it has a brilliant documentary about the Alien films. It's like a I, I love and because the, there's certain DVD producers that I follow. That's how geeky I get into it. Is there are DVD producers where it's like, I know that it's going to be good because that guy's producing it and they'll get good stuff. I'm, I'm shocked at like the how Michael Bay, what, whatever you think of the Transformers movies, I, I think the movies are fine. His commentaries on the Transformers DVDs are amazing. He's not self-aggrandizing. He doesn't talk about how these movies are great. He talks about how he tried to do it. He talks about how he failed here. He's brutally honest. On a recent in the Transformers 3 um, uh, Blu-ray DVD, you know, he's talking about uh, uh, what's her name? Megan Fox? Or Yeah, the, the, she was not in the third one, Megan Fox. I don't know why I spaced on her name. Um, Megan Fox is not in the third one. And he, they do this sort of mini behind-the-scenes documentary where he's talking about, you know, it's nice to have an actress, when he's talking about the new actress, who shows up on the set and is just polite and nice to everybody. And <laughs> it was the most damning. It was like he was doing stand-up comedy. Like, he was so mean about Megan Fox, but he never said anything about her directly. He said, you know, some actresses feel like they have to have a certain look. He was referencing some of the plastic surgery that she'd had done that's pretty pretty intense i guess you have got to get the transformers 3 blu-ray watch the behind the scenes and there's a whole little documentary about the new girl who's taking the megan fox position and all the comments that michael bay says there's some of the meanest things without directly saying something mean i've ever heard anyone talk about it's incredible what he's how he's saying it like you know it's like oh my god that's horrific so so i love that like even like there's some movies like um citizen toxie uh which is a toxic avenger movie <clears throat> and there's a commentary on there with lloyd kaufman from trauma it's hilarious he talks about just he's first of all he lies on it and he says oh yeah you know we had brad pitt uh that's brad pitt and uh, he's wearing the toxie uh costume um in this scene but he's just saying this stuff totally deadpan mm -hmm. completely deadpan and um i am a commentary uh, addict. I mean, I have wireless speakers all throughout my place, so I'm either listening to a podcast or listening to a DVD commentary that I'm, I'm that I is all over. If I'm in the bathroom, I have speakers in my bathroom, wireless speakers, so I can listen to DVD commentary. I'm a little obsessed. <laughs> so between that and podcasts, it's like always, it's always this running uh, audio that um, that I'm into. So, so look, I've talked enough. This is. <laughs> See, this is what always happens on Attack of the Show. I'm on for four or five minutes to talk about three DVDs, and I never get enough time to talk about it. It's it's because there's too much information in my head, and it's a, it's a problem because I take these exhaustive notes. I get on, and then it's like, I, it's, what am I doing? I talk for four minutes. So I, uh, I I work in a video store currently, that which makes me, I think, one of the 75 people on the continent who does, and or at least probably 13 in this. I, I'm in Montreal. And uh, we're the last video store left in downtown Montreal. Wow. And yeah, that says something. And um, so I, I watch, I, I watch Let's Listen to quite a few commentary tracks. I watch a lot of DVD extras. I, the, the main problem with most uh, featurettes, if you want to call them that, uh, is that I find about 85 to 90% of the time they're total fluff, as you know. I mean, you, they're, 
it was so great to work with so-and-so. It was so great to, who cares? I either like, you've got to break that format. Whenever I see a DVD producer break that format and do something different, that's a DVD. I, say, I look who the DVD producer is. I'm like, I'm going to look for the ones where that guy's doing it. But you don't right. think it's interesting that they all became a family? Yeah, on the set, yeah. That is the comment you hear. You know, we really became a family during the filming of this. Well, and then yeah. especially they say, I know everybody always says this, but we really became a family. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've never noticed DVD producer credits, but generally I find that certain directors just seem to facilitate better extras. Um, for instance, uh, I, I, whenever we are putting on a, Paul, a, a, a DVD for a Paul Verhoeven film, uh, there's always good stuff, particularly not not always necessarily commentary tracks, but let's talk about the commentary tracks. For instance, uh, one of my favorite moments on any commentary track, there is one for Starship Troopers. And I don't know if you've heard this, Chris, but it's you're familiar with the cast of Starship Troopers, the um, the the in the intellectual heavyweights that litter the cast of Starship Troopers. So it's them. So it, it's them and Paul Verhoeven. And Paul Verhoeven is a smart guy, and he talks a lot about the themes of, of the film, and and uh, basically he boils down the, the the he boils down the essence of Starship Troopers to the phrase "War makes fascists of us all," and then listening to 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 heavyweights like Casper Van Dien and Denise Richards try to sort of navigate what he's talking about is very very funny, and in in particular he just grows impatient with them, and clearly nobody was. They did. They clearly didn't have anyone doing audio mastering on the commentary track because at one point he just screams at them, and it's you know it has to be ten times the volume of the rest of the track. And if you're not careful, it, watch 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 out for your expensive wireless speakers. If you're not careful, you will blow them uh, while listening to it. Oh my god! Well, it's 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 just one of those things where when I went to because I um when I was doing Film Threat magazine, we had a division, um, and I wrote a book called The Complete DVD Book. Um, I co-wrote it with a guy named Paul Salamoff, and it's basically about how to independently produce and release your film on DVD. And I talked a lot about the production and what needs to happen and what makes a good DVD commentary. People like, you know, Bruce uh, Bruce Campbell is one of the best at doing DVD commentary, along with Steven Soderbergh, who begins, he does all of his DVD commentaries with the screenwriter, and um, he always begins it with, and now for another edition of Two White Guys Talking About Movies. And... Uh, for the D on the DVD commentary track for the Lime, he actually gets in a fight with that screenwriter because the screen Dobbs, yeah, yeah. Like, why did you change this in the end? I thought it was great. It's conflict. It's it's okay. I, I guess I've always believed it's it's okay. To, like that kind of thing is all right. Like so, when I wrote this whole part about recording DVD comment DVD commentaries, one of the attractive things I think is when someone does it in a unique situation. You get such good audio with you know a freaking iPhone mic. You can get good audio, so you can record a DVD commentary. In fact, one uh, uh, recently. Um, a DVD commentary I listened to a guy. Uh, it was for a movie called The Adventures of Power, which is uh, about um, the uh, 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 air drumming competition. Nice. It's done in the style of like an inspirational '80s go for your dream movie, um, and, and it's great. Adrian Grenier is in it from uh, Entourage. It's a fantastic The Adventures of Power. The director Ari Gold recorded the commentary in his car 
just with a microphone, just doing it. I mean, I like those kinds of things because it's real and honest, just like podcasts are. So um, when I was doing Film Threat, I had a whole line of films on DVD. We released about 30 independent movies on DVD, and we had like this whole mantra behind it of make it real and put in Easter eggs and extras, and we helped the filmmakers uh, do all the production on it. And when I produced my own for my own DVD, Red, which is no longer available on DVD, it's just... I did a production run of it and I won't do it again, unfortunately, but it's um, there's so many extras and Easter eggs on it. On every page, there's an Easter egg. There's, you know, three commentary tracks, a drunk commentary, a commentary I did with the cinematographer, and then a commentary I did with, at the time he was a, a production assistant, a PA. Now he's like an established screenwriter and we've actually done projects together. Oddly. Um, this is read as a short uh, film starring Lawrence Tierney that I did uh, years ago. Um, and then I released it on DVD and I really made sure like the extras were good because, and then same thing, I, I did this film called my big fat independent movie and the same thing. I put in all these DVD extras on, on the, on the double disc edition. There's, you know, there's a, there's Easter eggs on every single page of that. You know, when you scroll through the pages, there's, you know, just weird. In fact, I like to play with that stuff. So we did one of the, the thing extras is behind the, behind the scenes. Nice. And what it is, is. I got like a security cam video and I filmed the editor editing the behind the scenes. And it's funny, funny because you see this video and it's like day one and it like just goes and it just like fades out day two. It fades out. He's kind of just sitting there, you know, when one static shot day three and you see him turn towards his armpit and sniff day four, he has a different shirt on. So just so basically if you ever get the double disc uh dvd edition of my big fat independent movie it's a pair it's not only a, a spoof of indie films the extras are a spoof of dvd extras well speaking of spoofing dvd extras um you know interesting special features on films are rare they're even rarer on tv shows as you probably already know also um, but a, a pretty good uh, constant source of entertainment is uh, extras on Adult Swim DVDs. And some are non-existent. Uh, that that's true. But my my favorite uh, that I've seen, besides the stuff on the on the um, uh, the Aqua Teen movie, those are all fantastic. Uh, I, I especially like the deleted movie. Um, but um, on the DVDs for C Lab. I don't know if you've it, how familiar you are with uh, C Lab twenty twenty one. If that's what is it twenty twenty one? I think it is. Anyway, uh, on a particular uh, on two or three episodes because the the episodes are only about eleven minutes long. Uh, one of the writers sits down with the entire writing room and probably some producers and everything, and he says, "Okay, so for the for the length of this track, he doesn't talk about the show at all. He just reads to you a story that he wrote when he was seven. And it takes up several episodes worth of commentary and it's absolutely hilarious. Wow. It's, I love stuff like that. That's just, just give something different, something that's a sense of the show. I think it's been, there've been some real disappointments with things like the Dexter DVDs. I love Dexter, but those DVDs, there's just nothing on them. And if it's like a, you know, a season of Dexter that I'm not a fan of like season five, um, it's, it's, it's depressing. And then sometimes there are the ones like Best Buy will have some Best Buy exclusives. And I remember, um, getting the Dexter DVDs there because it had, uh, an extra DVD that had a Comic-Con press conference and they misspelled Comic-Con on the DVD. It was depressing. Yeah. Uh, TV shows really, I mean, uh, even when they do feature like 
there are very few TV shows that even get commentary right. I mean, actually, I think a really okay. good model for... I'm going to step in, actually, because being uh, such a TV person, I have a comparatively extensive DVD uh, TV collection, TV and DVD collection, and most of the series that I have actually have really great commentaries. And I would say there are... Uh, well, the the ones that jump immediately to mind is I think Joss Whedon does a great job on commentaries. And so Buffy, Angel, Firefly all have really interesting commentaries where they examine form, where they examine character development, as opposed to just, you know, entertaining stories about what happened on set. That That's all well and good. But I, I usually enjoy a little bit more than that. So if you want to if you want to look at some philosophy, listen to the DVD commentary to uh, to um the 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 finale for Firefly, which I can't believe the episode title is escaping me at the moment, but the one with Jubal Early, um, and it's great. If you another example of that is the Doctor Horrible, uh, er, uh, sing along blog DVD, which had commentary the musical, which was a separate musical that was them doing commentary about the show. And then if you look at something like Deadwood, there's a lot of really great uh, stuff just to listen to t Tim Oliphant and uh, Anita McShane uh, t talk is so much fun. And but I mean, there's I mean, and then when you talk about podcasts as well, Chris, there's you know, if you look at something like Lost there and uh, Battlestar Galactica is an example, there are shows that do commentary weekly commentaries as podcasts as well. And then they incorporate them on the show. Uh, there's a lot of uh, I believe there's quite a bit of Doctor Who uh, uh, commentary in a similar way. So I would say that there actually is a lot of good uh, special features and and commentaries and stuff out there for TV. I think you just have to know what kind of shows to look for. And I think mm -hmm. you're going to find that far more in your more niche and genre TV shows. Breaking Bad does, does weekly commentary uh, online as well. Yeah, definitely when it comes to the geek shows, like Game of Thrones uh, came out uh, on, on... And has amazing stuff, yeah amazing commentary and they mix it up you know they get even some of the child actors on the show um like actually there's one commentary where it's all the kids and they sing um, the theme song and it's adorable <laughs> yeah it's super cute it's like if you're a fan of that so i really do think that they pay more attention to that so and they should because the audience they that's what they expect and if you don't give it to them dexter you know <laughs> then it's it's a huge mistake you're, you're missing a huge opportunity i mean really don't I mean, other than renting the Dexter DVDs, I can't justify keeping them on the shelf, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I just remember, granted, this takes it back to, to film, but I remember going out and getting the, the Batman Begins DVD at, when it came out because I really enjoyed that. Um, and then I got it home and I popped it in and found out that it was the, the, the no special features DVD uh, that they had like been the rental copy. Yeah, yeah. well, they had been set, selling a stripped down version. I guess that was less expensive, and I didn't look at it carefully enough, and and so I w I just gave it away because it was useless to me without special features. It's I, I agree. It's just uh, you 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 have to have them. It's 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 you know it's part of the experience. You know, mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I just I, I really I do judge a DVD both by its cover and its special features. What's well, I mean, on the outside? What's on the outside and what's on the inside? 
Yeah, DVDs are meant for rewatching time and again, and it, they're meant for spending time with these characters and these creators, getting to really know the world, having again a sense of ownership of of what you're watching, and that goes down to all the little details involved. So if you're just giving them the thing that they could watch on TV, then why should they sh shell out the you know thirty, forty, fifty bucks if it's an HBO show to to have these thirteen episodes of television or these twenty episodes of television? No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's like if it's a geek show, I think that they're, you're more likely to find them. Uh, but I do like things like even like Breaking Bad, which has commentaries on, I believe, almost all the episodes. It's weird how they'll skip episodes. But it's also mm -hmm. it's a scheduling issue, like making sure to get everyone together. And I know like when I produced uh, and I co-wrote this movie, uh, my big fat independent movie, which I think you should all get uh, because I, I in fact, I think the special features on it are actually better than the film. But but uh, I'm, I'm kind of hard on myself with this stuff. But, <clears throat> but you know, it's, it's a scheduling issue. Like, I was trying to get all the actors together to record. I wanted a drunk commentary from all the actors. So I asked all the actors what their favorite, their drink of choice was, beer, vodka, whatever. Got them all in a room, and um, they, you know, <laughs> they got drunk, and they talked about the movie, and it was fun. Well, so another one for that is Cannibal the Musical, by the way, which has a fabulous commentary. <laughs> Oh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker. I mean, they've got ones where they've done drunk commentaries and they like they really have gone out of their way to do some interesting special features. Well, and speaking of Parker and Stone, I really like their model of commentary for South Park, which I don't think I've seen anyone else do where they they do every single episode and it's always them. But they only talk for about five, six minutes an episode. Uh, the, the rest of the episode ha features no commentary. And I think it's better than just then crowding all you know just sort of piling on a bunch of thoughts for one episode and then taking three off i think it's better to have something to say about each episode but then, but then also not sort of stretching out longer than they need, than they need to or going on laboriously in too much detail i think that's a, that's a good option for some shows that other things should uh, consider yeah it's like even um kevin smith's uh, red state dvd which came out he actually took he did a red state podcast and he took the episodes of the red state podcast and put it on the dvd just as an audio feature so because you know just having produced many dvds the one thing that i do know technically is there's so much room for audio I mean, you could have 10 commentary tracks if you wanted to. I think that's a little excessive, but um, I do love that kind of thing. And the fact that like you can, you know, you can do here's the deleted scenes, here's the d deleted scenes with commentary. I mean, I, I like those. It's it's a way to sort of for me, like a really well produced DVD with special features is like it's like a way to mark this in history. It's like this is everything that could possibly be said about this movie. And it's it's an education. It's a course. And even if I haven't watched all of it, as I know it's on my shelf and someday I'm going to pull that DVD off and I'm going to completely experience it. And, and I like those ones that end up being like a marathon or a whole weekend. Well, speaking of of these commentaries and being able to pull it off the shelf, where do you where do you guys see special features and commentaries going as we become more uh, and more a streaming and uh, and not a hard disk owning uh, media and you know uh, consuming population this is this is depressing because for real 2012 is the not only is this potentially the end of the world but it's the <laughs> end of the dvd because this is the year that it's estimated that downloads of movies and television shows will exceed sales of DVDs. I mean, DVD, DVD sales have been dwindling 
for a while now, the last couple of years. I think people, you know, that maybe maybe they got their like, you know, sometimes they go through a phase. My collection's too big. I'm gonna filter it out. It's like this is coming out on Blu-ray. I don't need this anymore. There's a newer version of this. Uh, why did I keep that? That's been in the wrapper for six months. I'm never gonna watch it. These this is the criteria I have for actually, you know, getting rid of stuff and kind of cleaning out my collection. But I think a lot of people have gotten rid of their hard media, whether it be CDs and DVDs. And so downloads will exceed that. I don't know how the component of special features fits into downloads. I really think the downloads should be cheaper than a DVD. Certainly the production cost is less. You're delivering an electronic medium. I mean, not a physical manufactured uh, work. And, you know, it should include some sort of like, almost like a la carte. I just want the episodes. I want the episodes with commentary. I want the episodes with all the extras. I want like the loaded one. Just like a, when you look, when you order the baked potato on the side with your steak, you want to be, I want the, I'll get the cheddar, I will get the butter and the sour cream and the chives and bacon. Can't forget bacon. I want it all. <laughs> so that's yeah. how I want my DVDs. I don't know. I mean, th there have been few cases I've seen where, where you've been able to, and especially I think Netflix has to figure this out, you know. Um, you know, I want to be able to stream the extras. I want to stream it with the, I want to hear the commentary to this. Mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't know. I, I'm curious what you guys think about this. I'm really distressed by it. Yeah, they're they're gonna have to make a, they're gonna have to accommodate those things for sure. And and I hope I'm hoping they do it soon. I think it's just a matter of the shift has taken place too rapidly, uh, maybe more rapidly than anyone was really hoping. <laughs> other than you know maybe the streaming arm of Netflix, and I they, they just they don't seem prepared to uh, to handle that yet. I'm I'm hoping that there there will be. Uh, allowances made for that kind of content and for it to be accessible uh as widely accessible as it is in dvd format yeah i really uh, there i for, i don't have unfortunately the time to to watch commentaries the way that i used to uh for tv shows i used to get the the box set and watch all of the commentaries and watch all the special features i unfortunately can't do that anymore but i do very much enjoy them i i probably have watched the uh the special features on the firefly box set as many times as i've watched the the episodes i really enjoy being able to to loan out dvds and 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 hand them to a friend and say i think you will like this i i i want to share this with you but uh you know that that is going to go away with streaming but i think I think they should be able to to transfer the the, the special features idea to to streaming. I think they just have to spend the time. Though maybe we're going to start seeing more of the special features just online on websites for these shows on on uh, official sites as opposed to in Netflix. Yeah, I mean certainly there's been um, and I think this is confusing to people who like podcasts like us. Um, if you go to podcast the, the, the podcast section, you'll see uh, of iTunes, they have like video podcasts. And a lot of those are just special features or promotional uh, things for TV shows. I mean, the Sarah Silverman show, they never did a podcast. Uh, you know, they just have like sort of promotional elements, sort of an extension of that. And they're all they're all just sort of a sales. Uh, it's a sales tool. It's not a real podcast, but somehow they mix it in the podcast section. Makes no sense to me. But maybe mm -hmm. maybe that that does make a lot of sense of just having some website where it lives but how does that then like i want to experience my dvd on a television um or or some monitor or my computer when i'm traveling so how does that 
work? You know, do I need to have the, do I have to have the Wi-Fi access? I'd rather be able to download it. But then, you know, I, I do download when I'll buy a Blu-ray that has, oh, okay, it also comes with digital copy. I download the digital copy, but it takes up so much space. After a while, I just got to dump it off onto a hard drive. I can't keep it on my computer. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, you may end up seeing sort of these video you know, these uh, hard drives where your DVD collection lives like right here in the palm of your hand. That's this used to represent a, s- a shelf of 800 DVDs. Now I'm holding it. But, you know, it, it, I mean, it was, it was one of those things where it's like they would take your home movies, you know, your VHS movies and transfer them to DVD. And one of my jobs when I worked at the video store, I also worked at a video store, Simon, um, when uh, I I used to actually be out um, at the you know, front desk working with customers. And I'd always recommend movies, except after a while, first of all, I was an annoying punk kid at that time. And I was extremely judgmental about the choices when people would go to, you know, <laughs> rent, or rent things on, on video. I would, and then I would recommend movies that were totally inappropriate for them. So I suddenly got sort of thrown in the back room. Like you can't do this anymore. You've got to work in the back. And my job was to transfer home movies from super eight, 16 millimeter and, and eight millimeter to video. And now it's a whole thing of transferring you know, home video to DVD, you know, you may see a whole trend where you can take your DVD collection of DVDs you own and just transfer it to a hard drive. Um, that may end up being where we're going. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just like, I fear for the future just because it's like, uh, I, I want to preserve. I, I like also that thing. It's like a book, you know, um, it's it's a physical thing to to hold. Yeah, exactly. But I really think, though, that it's a generational thing, too, because. Um, you know, people are, there's a whole generation coming up that doesn't care, would rather not be, you know, burdened by having stuff. I came from a stuff generation and frankly, I got too much stuff. I will say it's all alphabetized and organized, Mm -hmm. but I do have too much of it. Um, I mean, look, you know, you know, you're a DVD collector. Is it alphabetized? And I love seeing how other people, (laughs) um, how other people have their, like I, my collection is alphabetized, but then I do break it down a little bit. I'll take TV on DVD and it's its own section. Mm -hmm. That's half of a shelf. Well, you have to do that. (laughs) I've got another section. It's all music related and or music documentaries. So there's that. Then I have a documentary DVDs. Then I have your standard, like, you know, these are narrative movies. So I'm curious, how do you guys, you know, store your DVDs? Uh, TV, alphabetical, and then film, alphabetical. I don't have enough movies to warrant so, so many uh, categories. Uh, personally, I, I live a fairly Spartan existence, and I don't really collect things. Uh, so I, I actually can't can't speak to that. Although it sounds very much, Chris, like your room probably just resembles a video store. Well, as soon as anybody starts talking about the, the way in which they uh, organize their collection assuming it's not just alphabetical i immediately go to high fidelity and the uh, autobiographical uh ordering of of records in in that movie um we should wrap wrap up though uh, do you guys have any final thoughts on uh, on dvds and on streaming and special features the dvd is not dead long live the dvd <laughs> nice i you know i'm all for that if it means that i can i mean though i i do I always think it's hilarious every now and again when I pop in a VHS if I don't have the DVD of that and there's like a special feature thing at the beginning that I have to fast forward to. I always think that's hilarious. Um, and maybe that's what the next generation will think about DVDs, but uh, it's, it's pretty fun. Uh, Simon, what do you think? Uh, I have one last feature to plug, which is uh, if on the original DVD for 12 Monkeys, there's a 90-minute documentary 
on a, on the same single disc. It's called the Hamster Factor. Good luck finding it as a, as a digital download. It's fantastic. Yes, I've seen that as well. It's brilliant. Oh, that's a great that's a great one, Simon. That's awesome. So, uh, so Chris, uh, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at that Chris Gore. You can find me at chrisgore.com. And you can listen to my podcast, which is called Pod Crash. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, and your popular mobile devices in, you know, podcast store. There isn't <laughs> one. Well, and th- that's you going on to shows such as this, yes? Yes, yeah. Actually, like, the whole premise of Pod Crash is I'm too lazy to do a podcast. So I just go on other people's podcasts, and then I play the clips on my show, and I kind of do a little wraparound commentary explaining, you know, sort of expanded thoughts. And I usually do a little rant at the beginning about what's going on in my in my life. And then uh, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I like to think it's a comedy show. Uh, but, you know, you might learn something and you might discover another podcast like yours. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, this was a blast. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.